You looking forward to talking about spooky things? Yes. Since this is the week of Halloween, I thought it'd be a great time to bring back my guest, uh, Dr. Taylor Carlisle, who is also my husband, to talk about some, maybe fun, is it the right word, but some <laughs> curious and interesting spooky things around Halloween. Uh, certainly 2020 has been spooky enough, but this is to be a little more entertaining and enlightening around some things that uh, he and I have both been involved with over the years through either research or being his being an infectious disease doctor and some of the patients he's seen. I can't do a show on Halloween without giving a shout out both to our boys who grown up loving Halloween because we did too and they still do. Uh, my grandbaby who loves Halloween, and my f- special friend from way back when, Tracy Honaker, uh, who grew up with me as Tracy Bruce, uh, you know, doing a lot of Halloween things, and we still both love Halloween. Well, thank you for being on my podcast. And thank you for inviting me back. I'm looking forward to it. The first thing we thought we'd talk about are bats, and I'll give you just a little background on my my research, uh, when I was a grad student in Texas Tech, uh, working on my master's degree, I studied bats. And people think that's unusual and odd, but uh, I was a, a zoology major, uh, took mammalogy, took vertebrate zoology, took genetics, took a lot of different things. And uh, my mammalogy professor, Dr. Robert Baker, uh, the late Dr. Robert Baker was uh, studied bats and rats and things in his research. So that got me interested, and I got involved in the research in his lab. And we did studies, genetic studies, chromosomal evolution studies on New World leaf nose bats. The ones I studied were Artebius, special fruit-eating bats, of the family stenodermines, stenodermines, the stenodermines. Gosh, it's been so long. (laughs) And bats, of course, are mammals and in the order Chiroptera. And again, these were New World leaf-nosed bats. And and we're going to talk a little bit about the different kinds of bats. And uh, I'll let you have something to say. They're interesting because you study New World bats. And when most people, well... If you think of the stereotypical bat, you're mostly thinking of old world fruit bats, the big ones that hang from the trees and you see them at zoos and things. And that is um, not what you studied. They're interesting in their own right, partly because they don't echolocate to that much of a degree, whereas the new world bats entirely live by echolocation, which I've always felt fascinating. 
And, of course, the leaf-nosed bats, I mean, it helps to direct sound into their big ears. And I was always as fascinated as you were about them. I mean, you got to work on it when I was... I was jealous of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of the things we would do to study them is you've got to find them. you got to collect them. And the way you do that is you go to where the bats live. And we live in the Texas Panhandle, and there are bats around here. We see them periodically uh, flying in the evening, flying over lakes, flying around. They're more prevalent than you think, and they do good things. They if you eat. go out and and look right about dusk or so, uh, you'll see them. Yeah. And they'll be flying around. You have to be looking for them. They're up in the air. They fly very irregularly. And once you've seen how they fly, they're unmistakable. And when we were in the Grand Tetons last August, there was something in the sky, but we couldn't quite see it. And when we put the binoculars on it, Oh, my gosh, it was thousands and tens of thousands of bats coming up out of the forest of the And Wyoming. I might add the group that we were sitting with uh, by the outside campfire wouldn't have noticed them if we hadn't specifically <laughs> pointed them out. That's, that's how much you have to really look for them. But, but they were there. so high you couldn't see them without the binoculars. Right. Honestly, it was pretty amazing. And I don't think I've ever seen so many bats. But to find the bats... I studied. They live in Mexico, Central America, South America. And you travel to those areas. And what you do is you go out uh, typically around either water or flyways in fruit orchards and things and put out what are called mist nets. And mist nets, M-I-S-T, uh, are kind of like big hair nets, giant hair nets that you string between poles or trees or people. And at the time, I had had rabies shots, preventative rabies shots. I know they've advanced those since then because bats can carry rabies. But we would wear heavy gloves. We would collect them, put them in uh, some little half-size pillowcases that we'd tie to our belts mm -hmm. and uh, bring them back and uh, collect their you know, DNA and, and do uh, studies on, on their genetics. And interestingly enough, the bats at least that I worked on, were uh, there, you know, humans have an XX, XY sexual uh, chromosomes to distinguish females and males. But these bats had uh, very, depending on the species or the genus of the bats, had a variety of sexually identifying chromosomes. It wasn't necessarily XX and XY. It might be X. X and XYY or XYZ or the the, the different uh, chromosomes might be for the female and the other for the male. So it was really interesting. And I might add those those chromosomal patterns essentially don't occur in humans except uh, uh, rarely. We have XO, which is Turner syndrome, and XXY, which is Klinefelters, and then they have XYY, which is debatable. But these bats seem to have it, you know, kind of built into the mix, uh -huh. which I thought was fascinating. So, uh, of course, it's Halloween, so we can't help but talk about vampire bats. So. Uh, and the, you worked on uh, what's uh, very close to vampire bats, right? Yeah, they're, they're related. Desmodus. And Desmodus... Interestingly enough, are they do something that a couple of things that other bats don't do? They walk on their 
eat. Their little wings and their back feet, they can run along the ground. Yeah. Just like a little rodent. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason they would do that is so they could kind of sneak up on their prey. Like Usually cattle. Cattle or a donkey or something. But they have been known to, to drink human blood. Right. And they don't exist in... in in the United States, but right. but again, in the tropics and subtropics. They're interesting because they they have little sharp, pointy teeth, and they sneak up on the, whatever the sleeping animal is down there in Central and South America, and they poke it, and they have an anticoagulant in their saliva, so the blood kind of flows freely and hopefully without the animal noticing it. So they can, they kind of sit there and lap it up with their tongue <laughs> for as long as they can get their fill. Well, and that, yeah, that keeps it from coagulating and so it keeps flowing. But it's almost like their teeth are like scalpels, yeah. not so much as a poke. They're kind of forward, slice. pointy yeah. and sharp. So what else is interesting about bats? Well, you mentioned something that uh, has an infectious disease relevancy, and that's rabies. That's essentially, you know, the most feared virus infection that you can get. And why is that? It's 100% fatal if, uh, if it actually, the virus reaches the brain, what we call the bullet virus or the uh, rhabdovirus. And they're really large and they're associated Usually with canines of all kinds, that includes in the United States skunks and raccoons, uh, badgers, but also their primary reservoir, at least in the U.S., is bats. Probably 50% of the cases in the past decade or two that reported by the CDC have been bat viruses, and usually they have to bite you, but not 100% of the time. Uh, they're, uh, but if you have a house infested with bats, you're at risk for rabies, which if you get the vaccinations, you can prevent the disease. But if it reaches to the brain, it's almost 100% incurable, fatal. So again, I mentioned I had had rabies shots. Those were preventative rabies shots. Right. As I think you took to, it. You had the before the human diploid cell vaccine. Yeah, I had was the horse, available. the equine. You had the duck embryo vaccine, which was famous for being painful. <laughs> but the modern human diploid cell vaccine is is much less of a problem. It's just very expensive, and uh, sometimes, it, depending on what your insurance is, if you have to buy it yourself, it becomes kind of a interesting uh, decision point about whether to to actually give vaccinations or not. I might point out that dog and cat rabies are rare in the U.S. now. It depends on the community, unless you're on the Rio Grande border. But if you saw a bat on the ground... Don't pick it up. Don't pick it up. Call animal control. Right. Don't ever pick up a dead bat on the ground. Or a live bat on the ground. One of the most common and numerous abundant North American bat is the uh, Tadarida brasiliensis, which is the Mexican free-tail bat. And it is the one that appears in millions of, of individual bats, like in colonies like Bracken Cave and, and down in South Texas. And they are known to be long, strong flyers, and they migrate. They go to Carlsbad Caverns. It's estimated that maybe 10% of them have, have rabies. Well. Wow. And they harbor it asymptomatically, apparently. Well, so we don't uh, pick up bats, but bats do good things. Bats eat lots of insects. You know, I'm not going to badmouth bats. They eat a lot of flying insects, and they're good people. If you just um, avoid picking them up, I think you'll be fine. Well, and they also pollinate. 
They pollinate that's plants. Right. They, in southwest Arizona. Yeah, well, not only there, but yeah, that's they, they also do that. lots of other places, too. Um, there and are my other favorite com- bat, the fish-eating yeah, bat. Noctilia. Which uses echolocation to snatch fish right out of the jungle waters down there in the Amazon. <laughs> so let's talk about echolocation a little bit. Absolutely. Uh, what animals do echolocate? Well, certainly bats. Dolphins? Dolphins, absolutely. In fact, many whales do. Yeah, yeah. The toothed whales, at least. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think quite a few cetaceans echolocate. And I will will apologize if any of these things have been updated and changed or uh, reorganized in the phylogenetic uh, categories since we studied these <laughs> quite some time ago. Ages so, ago. So yes. that, that that's a possibility. And the and the fascination of the world around you is the reason both you and I have degrees in zoology, because we love life, animals, the world around us. So this is educational. It's supposed to be about spooky things. What other spooky things might we talk about? Hmm. What about snakes? What about snakes? People are scared of snakes. Are you scared of snakes? Not me, but everybody I know, I think 99% of humanity is scared of them. (laughs) We like snakes. I've always thought they're interesting. And, uh, you know, who knows why, why they're such a primal fear of snakes. I mean, clearly in the Bible, I mean, you have uh, the snakes as the bad guy or the snake as the bad guy. And that's probably influenced a lot of post-Christian thought over the centuries. And and But even in areas where snakes are not part of uh, the religious, in fact, in you know parts of the world, snakes are actually worshipped. They're still feared. Uh, I think there's a cultural built-in fear, not least because if you live in places like Africa and India, there are a lot of deadly snakes. Yes, and and in North America, really, it's rattlesnakes, copperheads, coral snakes. snakes. We have the so-called pit vipers. It's rattlesnakes, copperheads, and cottonmouth water moccasins, and they're all potentially fatal, usually not except for the big ones, the eastern and western diamondbacks. They can inject quite a bit of poison because uh, they're big and they have big heads. The other ones rarely cause many fatalities, maybe in the very young and very old. And they can, But they can sure cause loss of limb. They bite you and you don't get to uh, help in time. You can get gangrene of hand or foot or whatever and can lose a limb. So just be careful when you're out there hiking. Don't put your hands in crevices, uh, you know, step way over logs, things like that. I think snakes are unnecessarily feared while hiking. I grew up in the South and Louisiana and Alabama. And, and, you know, if if you walk through the grass down by water down there, you're walking past a water moccasin. But they tend to lie real still, and they unless you step right on them, they won't bother you. Rattlesnakes are even better because they rattle, and most of the time they do not want to bite you. They want you to walk on past. Well, another thing that some people think are spooky or is spooky uh, might be rats. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and the, there might be a good reason. Well, the two of those, I would say rats spook me more than snakes. <laughs> Why is that? 
Oh, I'm maybe a remnant memory of 1984, <laughs> 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 where they were employed to uh, sort of terrifying extent at the end of that book. Um, but I do think that rats, for one thing, rats from an infectious disease standpoint are bad actors. I mean, they they have spread many different fatal diseases, and not just fatal bubonic plague, obviously, but they can transmit viruses, they're fleas, and can transmit other infectious diseases that I won't go well, into. Well, like hantavirus, that was a fairly oh, recently yeah. uh, discovered Those are interestingly virus. not, we're not the typical, most people, I guess, should know that our, the rat, the black rat and the Norway rat, our two main big rats, are actually not native to America. They were brought here by the Europeans and the Asians. And the house mouse. And the house mouse as well. That's not native. And those those non-native rats and mice are not the ones that actually transmitted the famous hantavirus. It was actually only the Native American rodents. And that's why a lot of them, you know, outbreaks occurred on Indian reservations in the Southwest where they live close to the native rats. Okay, so we've talked bats, rats, snakes. What could be more Halloween-y than spiders? <laughs> There's another one that I think people are inordinately afraid of, <laughs> including my nurse. He was definitely afraid of them. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't matter. They can be teeny tiny. I, I found a tarantula in the parking lot one time and carried it up to my office and my palm. I'm just like it's sitting on the palm, which anybody who's ever been around tarantulas knows that, that you really have to aggravate them for, for them to bite you. And she just about fainted dead away. <laughs> made me take it back outside, which I probably did, but I thought people would find it interesting. But there are, I mean, spiders, again, along with all, most of these other animals do a lot of good, you know. They, oh, spiders. I never kill a spider. I think they're good. They eat insects. They mostly don't bother you. There's very few spiders that really cause any medical problems of consequence. In fact, I can think of only two principal ones. One is Loxosceles, the brown recluse spider, which is common in houses just about everywhere, even though people don't want to know about it. But if you go out and clean out your garage, uh, they're there with their eyes on you. Well, talk about what happens if you get a, a You know, because uh, I know you've seen some cases. I've seen enough cases to respect <laughs> it, I can tell you that. It ranges from mild, usually when the when the spider, the brown recluse spider bites you, you don't actually feel the bite, interestingly enough. You you notice later on when it starts to ulcerate and it 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 emits a, a toxin, a poison that leaches into fat. And especially if you get get bitten on a fatty area, namely like a breast, believe me I've seen it, or a buttock. Or certain other parts of your, like a upper arm, for example, uh, then you've got a bad problem because it the the toxin can actually cause hemolysis, and it can which is that's destroying the blood cells. And I'm actually taking care of somebody that nearly died, and she was a teenager and got bitten on her upper arm, and if they hadn't cut all the poison out in a wide fashion, I mean, she could have died easily. I also had a friend who got bitten on the buttock, and it took months to get him healed. They had to operate on him like three times. Until you get every last bit of that toxin out, you're not going to 
get better. So, so it can be an impressive disease. Most of the time, not. In fact, most people, about 20 years ago, when we started, we I was on the Board of Public Health here in our area, and uh, our reporting of spider bites increased by a thousandfold one year in the early aughts. And it turned out that people were misdiagnosing what's called PVL strain MRSA infections because they look very similar to a brown recluse spider bite. A purplish discoloration, kind of a nodular, what we call inflammation or pyoderma. Doesn't it make kind of a circle at yeah, first? It, well, it can, it can Some, it, but it can easily sometimes. be mistaken. If you know what you're looking at, it's it's more obvious, but but... Not if you're like in a rapidly moving urgent care center and you just have time to glance at somebody. And that's what was happening. They were they were diagnosing spider bites and and mostly these were what we call MRSA infection. And fortunately that situation has really improved. Most people now can recognize those kind of MRSA infections. In fact, they're common all over the country. I'm sure your audience has heard plenty of, about that. The other spider um that, of course, is famous. In fact, Halloween's a great time to talk about it. The black widow spider. Which I saw one not long ago out here and under my faucet. So, and easy. they kind of make, they're not orb weavers. They make that real messy. They make a kind of an ugly little nest. So if you find those, look for the black widow. And, and I do kill those. <laughs> yeah, they're, um, you can see those in storehouses. I have a, uh, a great story because it's on myself. Well, tell us. I was in... Uh, residency training in New Orleans, and I was mowing the yard one afternoon, and I went to uh, put the lawnmower up. We had a little uh, tin shack back there. Shed, yeah. A shed, and I put the lawnmower up, and I remember there was, it was kind of, I kind of felt some stuff brushing against me, and I thought it was just, you know, dirt and spider webs, and then I uh, went back in the house and developed profuse sweating and pain and tightness in my chest. <laughs> my wife was about to take me to the emergency that room. That would be me. <laughs> I said, no, just give me a minute. I think I know, might know what this is. And so I waited for about two hours. Oh, there was god awful. And I finally started feeling better. I went back out there and looked, and sure enough, the black widows, I think one of them had fallen down in my back of my shirt and had bitten me right between the shoulder blades. Mighty unpleasant. But then, of course, I studied it after that and read about it more and realized it's it's usually not fatal unless you're very old or infirm or, or very young. Still, you don't want to <laughs> go expose yourself and practice. Yeah, and and they are, they are not uncommon in, in our area. The thing I noticed is that I felt like I was having a heart attack, which is, that's how the textbooks often describe it, because that type of uh, toxin, it's called a neurotoxin that they inject in you, is not locally invasive like it is with the recluse spider. It's actually a systemic toxin that uh, kind of trips that cascade. Well, something else that people find spooky and entertaining are zombies. Oh. <laughs> but I don't, you know, while they eat flesh, it's not the zombies I want to talk about. Let's talk about flesh-shaving That's bacteria. good because I've never liked zombies. I'm not a millennial. But let's talk my, about... My sons all love zombies. 
Let's talk about flesh-eating bacteria. Let's talk about that. You know, I can remember 20, 25 years ago, so it was in the National Enquirer or somebody that reported the dreaded flesh-eating strip that can march up your leg in six hours and kill all the flesh off of it. That's actually quite a common bacteria called Group A Streptococcus or Streptococcus pyogenes. It's really the most common uh, you know, strep throat that's caused by this dangerous bacterium, which typically isn't all that dangerous. But if it gets in the right place, usually a leg or an arm, even a face sometimes, it can cause what's called a necrotizing infection or a flesh-eating infection when the toxins that this bug produces can dissolve tissue and white blood, keep, keep white blood cells from coming. They can make blood cells disappear and they can chew through skin and also muscle. And so you have to actually cut a lot of tissue off. It's unusual for you to see the real bad ones that, you know, get reported in the National Enquirer, uh, but it's so common that we see it all the time. It's just usually not that severe. For some reason, that caught the public imagination 20 or so years ago, and there was constant reporting of the flesh-eating bacteria, the, the lurid aspects of it. I would also add that, there are other flesh-eating bacteria other than just streptococcus. There's one that I used to, when I trained in New Orleans, we used to see a fair bit of, and uh, it was from contamination from seawater. They have the salt water in the ocean is habited by a particular type of bacteria called a vibrio, which are kind of a spiral little gram-negative bacteria. The most famous disease that they cause is cholera, Vibrio cholera, which is rare in the U.S., but there is one Nowadays. Called, yeah, Vibrio vulnificus and Vibrio damsella and uh, Parahemolyticus, all are known to cause flesh-eating infections that can cause severe necrotizing dermatitis and fasciitis and even myositis, which is the muscle. And I saw plenty of that when I was in New Orleans. Typically, people would step on, cut their feet while they're wading in the salt water and then come in with this life-threatening illness. Interesting, another thing that Vibrio vulnificus does is it can cause a, a total body collapse if you if they contaminate raw oysters, with, not to scare anybody, but I don't need if oysters. you have chronic liver disease and you eat raw oysters and they have Vibrio in them, you can get a devastating, even fatal illness. All right. What else can be spooky? You know, as a tropical medicine training trained physician, you've dealt a lot with parasites and worms. I have, and, and I have had a fascination with them even before I went to medical school. I took a class in parasitology at, at college and just became very fascinated with the uh, life the life cycles of various kinds of parasites, which can be quite complicated. And some of them interesting and even lurid, like one of my favorites was the guinea worm and the trunk Dracunculus metanensis. It's common in Africa and the Middle East. was at one time. It's during the process of eradicating it now. But it was a, um, a parasite that if you got it in your system, you uh, the adults would migrate, they would actually, two of them would mate in your parenchyma of your advent, and then they would migrate out to an extremity. And like these are long, like a meter or two long, and they would go under the skin and then 
the female, once fertilized, would secrete a little enzyme in the skin, usually on the foot or the arm or somewhere, where it became so hot and blistery that you'd stick your leg in the water and the female then would then release all the eggs at that time. Wow, isn't evolution amazing? It is amazing. And then, then, then the water is constantly contaminated like that. So, and the way, you know, the, in fact, I like to say that the origin of the symbol of medicine, the staff of Asclepius, may have originated with the original thing that most doctors could do in the remote Middle East, uh, you know, a thousand BC. They discovered they could, an expert could take a stick and as to grab the end of the worm, and roll it slowly over a period of days and and just gradually, you know, kind of wheel it out of your body. They can't just yank it out because if it breaks, you can have anaphylaxis uh, in your in your system. So um, the guys who were really good at this could actually uh, paint a pole with a, like, look like a snake surrounding it, like a barber pole, and that became a symbol of medicine. That actually has not been confirmed, but I like the story so much I like to repeat it. <laughs> I mean, I know you've come home telling me about, you know, just individuals without detail, but they think, I mean, because we had a friend before with this, she knew she had worms coming out of her skin. (laughs) You're talking about (laughs) a dread condition that's known as delusional parasitosis. It's not uncommon. I learned about it when I I would, was put in charge of the uh, tropical disease clinic in New Orleans when I was in training. And I was so excited I was going to see cases of schistosomiasis or exotic things. And by far the majority of patients that were referred to me had delusional parasitosis. And so I decided to make lemonade with it, and I just be, I studied it and read a lot about it. There's a, quite a big body of literature about delusional parasitosis and found out that it was a common uh, psychiatric disorder, not disabling. You can actually work and be functional. But it's the idea that you can feel worms coming out of your skin or other parts of your body at times. Uh, the classic is somebody that brings in and says, I've I pull these worms off of my skin. They're they're coming out. I can tell when they come out. A lot of times they can say, I have exactly 22. And there's a jar. They brought it right. in, in a jar. That's the classic. You can't have the disease without the jar with the tissue paper in it. And it always contains little bits of flesh and skin that they've kind of scraped off. So it's a true delusion. If you asked him to point, if I asked the patient, he, he doesn't say, oh, they're not there right now. He says, there's one right there and points to a freckle or a mole or something and, and says, that's where the, that's, that's how they look before they come out. And I found out that this is actually not uncommon. And the other things that they'll think to, is that they'll think to come out of their anus and they'll bring you stool samples on multiple occasions and things. Um, oh long story short, it's it's not really a treatable condition. It's not especially dangerous. Uh, sometimes if you put them on uh, drugs like Prozac, they say they might help some. I've felt that usually just reassurance that's not a worm because um, some a lot a lot of these people are functional. They just think they've got worms. Wow. That's about the closest I get to most worm infections in the United States. (laughs) True worm infections are common elsewhere, but really not much in the U.S. We have clean water. Like a good example. Give an example or two. Of worms? Uh Uh-huh. 
common example is uh, tapeworms, which uh, if you go south of the border, we have a very good meat inspection system in the U.S., and it's strongly enforced. So, uh, you know, measly pork and things like that don't make it through to the supermarket. But if you go south of the border, people eat undercooked pork and they get pork tapeworms, which is called uh, tinea uh, solium. And it's not the adult tapeworm that causes problems. It doesn't usually harm you at all. But if you drink contaminated water or eat contaminated food and the eggs are in it, they can hatch in your body and form little larvae that can swim around and bury in the muscle because the the worm is stupid. It doesn't realize you're not a pig. And so it lodges in the muscles of the pigs, but also in a very sensitive area, the brain. So what we call neurocystocercosis, which is just a tapeworm larva, is common south of the border. And we see it very frequently up here, uh, usually in, in uh Mexican and Central American immigrants, where they usually don't notice, know it's there until they've been here for 10 or 15 years. And the worms basically die over that period of time. And then when they die, they lose their osmotic pressure and rupture, and then that can cause a seizure. So if you have some uh, young Central American uh, 35-year-old man or woman who's been living here 10 or 15 years and comes in with a seizure and then they find these little round lesions in their brain, that's probably neurocystocercosis. And uh, it is not uncommon. Honestly, there's actually controversy about whether you even treat it or not. They the, the eggs die over time, the larvae die over time and they'll calcify in your brain. Well, I'm sure we could do a whole episode on just parasites that you've seen <laughs> or, or whatever. But uh, yeah, one... I'd be the only one listening. To <laughs> <laughs> but one thing we haven't talked about yet, and and these I, I admit they kind of creep me out, are ticks. Uh, when I I know when we lived it. Well, oh, wait, I forgot to go back. What was your very first diagnosis? Oh. Medical <laughs> diagnosis. I diagnosed a young adult female with uh, giardiasis after she'd been in Mexico collecting bats. Right, and that she developed a malabsorptive <laughs> diarrhea, and she was my wife to be. <laughs> And I was treated, even though the doctor didn't believe me uh, when I went there. Um, but he, but you were right, and that was before you were a doctor. Okay, so so when we lived in New Orleans, and I remember, you know, we made red beans and rice or different kinds of beans and rice, which we're having for supper again tonight. Sorry, no, <laughs> no, right. no ticks involved. But I remember picking up a what I thought was. Uh, you know, a bean off the floor, and it, it was a tick Surprise. that had fallen off one of our dogs. It was engorged. Our husky had gotten ticks, and I find it had ticks, little little legs. I think they're absolutely fascinating. They, um, many people don't know that the, the, there's um, the, most of the ticks that you think of when you go out in the field and you come back and you have ticks on. It's called hard-bodied ticks or ixoded ticks, and those uh, have usually two or three stages that they go through they for example the one uh, well i'll just talk about a famous disease lyme disease uh that's the deer tick ixodes it used to be damini but now it's called uh, scapularis it was uh it's a t it's a, a deer tick but its first two hosts are usually rodents paramiscus specifically a 
white-footed deer mice that are common up in suburban areas in the northeast where there's also a lot of white-tailed deer. And these mice get infected with it, and then they the ticks in turn get reinfected. They kind of feed once on a mouse, drop off. They, they start off real tiny, almost invisible, and then they grow up to the size of a bean. They expand enormously. And you don't notice usually the real small ones, but they can still transmit disease. So that usually goes through one or two hosts, and they'll the final host, in that case a deer, in other cases it's other large mammals. So can ticks cause other diseases? Oh, gosh. <laughs> More than you can count. Have you seen any cases of interesting tick disease? Well, of course, our most common uh, Lyme disease is rare to impossible in the panhandle of Texas. Not that it doesn't get diagnosed, misdiagnosed. It's common in the Northeast. Uh, we don't see that one. We see Rocky Mountain spotted fevers. Um, we see uh, there's a another disease called ehrlichiosis, human ehrlichiosis, which you can see with ticks. One of the most interesting tick-related cases is actually one I'll end with here. Uh, I was in, uh, well, I can say it. I was at Charity Hospital in New Orleans. I was working, uh, and anybody's ever heard about Charity or knows it's a wild and woolly place in downtown New Orleans. And we had a we had a lady brought in one night, and she was an old lady, and she was a dog lady, and had been discovered by neighbors because her apartment began smelling real bad. And she was brought in extraordinarily weak and covered with ticks, dozens and dozens, scores and scores. It took two days to pick them all off her. I mean, they had to just... Do a group group. Was she effort. awake? Was she interacting? No, she was she was virtually paralyzed. She could still breathe. And they called me in. I was like, well, let's first of all start off by getting all the ticks off of her. So we had to put her in a bathtub and multiple times just just sit there and pluck ticks for hours in a row and you know, bag them up. And then we got her cleaned up and, and she, she had a bunch of ticks because Because she had like 50 dogs in her house. Oh, my goodness. And there's, you know, the dogs that defecated everywhere. That Obviously, there are people like this. <laughs> and so um, when we got all the ticks off of her, we came back around, looked, and she was still paralyzed. And I uh, said, well, just go over her again. Go through her hair. And we did that. And looked between all the toes, we stripped her naked and looked everywhere we could find. And... It wasn't until I think the third day that we went back around, and I don't, it wasn't me. I think it was one of the medical students that noticed, what's that in her ear there? And there was a big engorged tick, a dermocenter variabilis, a common dog tick, fully engorged, sticking in her ear canal. It was probably too small to have seen the first day or so, or maybe we were just too stupid and missed it. But when we plucked that thing out, she woke up. She had a thing called tick paralysis, which is a well-described syndrome, seldom seen anymore. But wow. And you don't have to be covered with ticks to get it. It's, it, it. it's rare. That's the only case I've ever seen of it, but I was impressed. Well, I hope you found this interesting talking about some 
some real animals and real creatures and bacteria that, you know, can be a little spooky. Uh, there's a lot of other real spooky stuff out there that I'm not going to cover in this episode. I wanted to keep it more focused on things that might be related to Halloween or just spooky feelings. Uh, I know a lot of these things creep some people out and other things creep <laughs> me out uh like rats i just you know i don't like having mice in my like mice you. in my house i don't like rats when i went to dc and there are rats everywhere you know at night when we went to the capitol but but i do want to remind folks that taylor was he is still my most popular podcast on his history of pandemics episode that we did back earlier during the uh the spring so if you haven't heard that please go listen to that if you like my podcast please go leave me a good rating on whatever uh, platform that you listen to podcasts on and thank you for being on my podcast again dear you're most uh, most welcome I I thoroughly enjoyed it just like last time (laughs) and thank you for listening to Annette on education and remember that these things are spooky but you shouldn't be scared of them And have a happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.